Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. This podcast is a labor of love. It's something that my team and I are very committed to. We do hear from people all the time who talk about how important it has been for them to hear other people talk about their experiences from their perspectives and what helped them, how they broke free, how they got the courage, and what struggles they dealt with and are still dealing with, what's helped them, what hasn't. So much information that feels supportive, but also instructive. And I want to be able to keep this going for as long as possible. Thank you to all of you also who've gone on to social media to share your reflections about this podcast and the guests we've had on and how moved you've been by them and also by the tone that we've worked hard to set where it has not been sensationalistic on purpose, where these are very real stories about very real people and things that could happen to anyone in different situations. It is immeasurably helpful to have the support of our patrons. And there are too many to name all at once, which is a lovely problem to have. And to know that we are almost breaking even with the amount that it costs to produce it each month. But I want to make sure to give a shout out to the people who are donating the most or who have been supporters for the longest. To Stephanie, Sheila, Holly, David, Donna, Michael, Zofia, Katrina, Peter and Cynthia, Camus, and Maureen, as well as two new patrons as of this past month to Richard and to Kim. Welcome to becoming patrons. And also as a reminder for people who are subscribers, who are patrons, if you want to become one, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. You will get some of the merchandise that we've put together with our logo. And also I offer kind of a five-minute weekly gift to the people who are our donors where I share some additional thoughts just for you. Thank you so much again for all of your support. I'm very excited to have you here, my guest today, Olga Yurkova. She is a journalist and co-founder of StopFake.org an independent Ukrainian organization that trains an international cohort of fact-checkers in an effort to curb propaganda and misinformation in the media. She explores propaganda methods and finds out new ways to overcome these new challenges. She has 15 years of experience in journalism, and she's headed multimedia newsrooms and she's run departments in national multimedia newsrooms dealing with information and misinformation for three years. She's also been working as a new media trainer since 2012 
and for fighting propaganda, Yurkova was included into the list of New Europe 100 and was named a TED Fellow in 2018. Her work is so interesting and so important. Here's Olga now. Olga, thank you so much. You're doing really interesting work. And I want you to be able to talk about who you are and introduce yourself to the listeners. But welcome to the show. So take it away. Thank you so much. I have 15 years experience in journalism. And um, we started our project uh, seven years ago in 2014. I remember that Sunday evening well. I was at my workplace and transcribed the interview. And just before, unmarked militants uh, illegally invaded Crimean Peninsula. And uh, obviously, they were Russian soldiers, but Russia did not confirm that. And at the same time, a lot of fake news about Ukraine appeared in the information space. It were blatant lies, outright lies. So for some time, we were speechless with shock. When I say we, I mean um, Ukrainian credible honest journalists. Then a group of journalists, including me, started a website to investigate fake news and collect all this false news about Ukraine and um, refute them with uh, journalistic methods. Just take a piece of news, check it with verifiable proofs like photos, videos, or other strong evidence. And if it turns out to be fake, we put it on our website. Our main goals were three, uh, to gather all the false news about Ukraine in one place, show in detail how we refuted them, uh, how we checked them, and increase the media literacy of our audience in this way. And uh, when accumulated a large amount of material, we show that this problem really exists and show its real significant scale. And it was seven years ago, uh, no one of us believed that this initiative would last that long. We just responded to the challenges of the, of the time. And we did what we thought was necessary and important. And in fact, we have, uh, like we have, uh, have set a trend of uh, using fact-checking to reveal foreign disinformation. And now we collected irrefutable evidence of a complex system of Russian disinformation and raised awareness of this problem internationally. It's a wonderful thing. And I wonder a couple of things. First, you know, just how it's been for you, because sometimes when people are refuting things that are not true on a political level, on a national scale, it sometimes gets very tense. It sometimes can feel dangerous. I don't know if you have dealt with intimidation, if you have dealt with feeling at all worried about this. Fortunately, we are in Ukraine, not in Russia, so many of our team get some threats, for example, of online, but we like used to deal with it um, every day, so we don't take it seriously. Okay, and so then what were some of the things that were being said about Ukraine, that there was suddenly this push for disinformation? What was the disinformation? This information is not just, uh, it's, it's not lazy journalism or, for example, uh, bad journalism. Uh, we, we started our project 
just um, with checking of we just focused on um, the work of our colleagues so-called colleagues journalists it's not something on social media or something like this and we have known them as um, credible journalists uh, credible media but situation turns uh, out to be uh, quite the opposite like, like in one moment it's not uh, um, actually it uh, didn't happen in one moment because uh, um, now we know that there were uh, was some uh, preparatory period some like uh, preparation of public opinion in Russia for example and diplomatic and uh, political steps but this uh, like modern scale of propaganda in Russian media of completely false information there it started uh, with the um, Russian aggression military aggression of Ukraine it's just like um, part of their their military not military tools but it's like a hybrid war and when information weapon works um, together with military weapon. Uh-huh, right. I love the way you just said that because so much of what we've learned about what's happened throughout history, recent history, not recent history, has been how the justification for war has been cultivated by misinformation or um, redirect of blame or just crafting things out of the air, you know, that where there is somehow a threat, um, where people are up to something, where they're taking away your power and you need to get it back. That's something I know all too well from family of mine who perished in the Holocaust, just being seen as my ancestors were not human. They were vermin, you know, and they were, they were a threat. So less than human and then suddenly superhuman and a threat. So they were both things, but both things, whatever would work for the audience, I think to make it seem justifiable to then engage in war and to be okay with it and to be okay with having other people suffer. So I agree with you that I think it is this two-step process and there are probably other mini steps along the way, but this two-step parallel process is extremely powerful. And if there aren't the stopgap measures, if there aren't the walls that are put up by groups like yours, it will just keep going and going and going and it gets quite dangerous. Yes, now we have more than 4,000 refuted false news about Ukraine on our websites. And most of them are created by the Russian media, both state and privately owned. And we analyzed the main narratives uh, behind them and identified 18 such narratives. For example, that Ukraine is a fascist state or failed state or state run by a junta who came to power as a result of a coup d'etat. And these are narratives uh, of discrediting the Ukrainian army, Ukrainian government, Ukrainian reforms, uh, different Ukrainian institutions. And so it's not enough just to check this false news. And I think that now we uh, we not just check, we are also a part of the civil society, civil society who, right. okay. who developed the policy uh, of in Ukraine of a policy of countering disinformation. I think that there is so much that you're doing that you can only imagine the impact because you don't know. Again, if if people didn't say this is this is false, all of these narratives are false. Then what would happen next? And what, what you're potentially preventing from happening. I think this is all very powerful. And so 
you were mentioning some of the narratives. Can you mention some of the others that you noticed that was being said about Ukraine, where you needed to clarify, you needed to make sure people knew the truth about these particular narratives because of how potentially destructive they were going to be? For example, there are a lot of fascist stories uh, constructed using Photoshop swastikas on uh, pictures. Something very, very simple, yes, just to um, to draw a swastika um, on the Ukrainian tent, for example, and then uh, write or show that um, that Ukrainian army or Ukrainian uh, volunteer battalions used swastikas as their symbols. Or, or for example, them um, using a lot of stories about uh, military camps in Ukraine where the uh, where far-right militants, Ukrainian militants, or for example, um, militants from the US or from Baltic states, because the Russian propaganda also loves uh, Baltic states. Uh, that's this um, militants um, allegedly teach uh, Ukrainian children how to kill people, for example. <laughs> and it's, it's not true. It's just a complete um, fiction. And there are a lot of such stories. This is like a recurring stories all the time in information space. They repeat them, um, and sometimes we even um, we even laugh from these uh, stories. For example, about the story um, that Ukrainian children are forced to play with the plush Hitler like toy or Hitler toy, for example, <laughs> or some stories about the um, uh, portrait of Hitler, um, story, stories that uh, uh, nationalistic Ukrainian party uh, proposes to put a portrait of Hitler on the banknote, for example, and it's also lies. And uh, a lot of uh, stories with Hitler, with fascists or Nazis, and then um, the uh, danger of all of the stories is in their cumulative effect, uh, because uh, because yes, um, when we talk about just one of the stories, they are like sometimes even comic, but uh, this cumulative effect um, really, uh, unfortunately, it really works. Right, right. So what can you tell us about that from your understanding of that cumulative effect. I agree with you. I think about it uh, uh, like with George Orwell, the author, 1984, just the propaganda machine and the impact that it has. Why do you think that it has that effect on people? Why do you think people, because we're seeing it here in the United States a lot. Sometimes I find even the, the more extreme the story is, the more it gets believed somehow? I mean, what, what have you come to understand about why it makes this impact rather than people just dismissing it? It's a bit of a problem because we're just starting to think how to measure this impact. Because now we just see that the proliferation of this information and we also uh, have some sociological um, sociological research in Ukraine which is being conducted every year at least for three last uh, years and uh, researchers asked people uh, in different Ukrainian regions uh, about their attitudes to um, some 
narratives about Ukraine. Now we see that there is some part of the Ukrainian population, um, unfortunately, they believe in um, Russian uh, in attitudes and narratives uh, promoted by Russia. For example, that the uh, Euromaidan protest in Ukraine was a coup d'etat, despite there were, were three elections or four elections in Ukraine for this uh, seven years, democratic elections and but. But people, yes, but people still believe in these narratives because they get the information from Russian TV channels or from uh, because um, people can get the access to these TV channels through the internet when they want. Despite the uh, Russian TV channels were banned in Ukraine, propagandist TV channels, yes. But everyone now can use the VPN and get the access to to these uh, TV channels. And people um, mostly in uh, in the eastern Ukraine, near the uh, front line, mm-hmm. they get the information from Russian or pro-Russian uh, sources. And they um, uh, tend to uh, share the Russian, with Russian attitudes. Our researchers in Ukraine um, even have hypothesis that uh, there is some link between Ukrainian identity and of people and their um, attitudes to the, this pro-Russian narratives. When people consider themselves Ukrainians, then they tend to believe in Ukrainian narrative, like not not and not believe in. Um, and this propaganda, Russian propaganda narrative. But it's interesting that all of us faced the COVID-19 pandemic uh, last year. And um, unfortunately, even sometimes even people who, who are resilient to this Russian propaganda, sometimes they believe in the COVID um, conspiracy theories and so on. So it's, uh, I think that um, we can also think how to build this resilience to different uh, disinfo- different kinds of disinformation, misinformation of information issues. It's important to teach people to be media literate. And I, I believe in media literacy, but it's long perspective to, uh, to improve the situation. And uh, in, Short perspective, we uh, try to reach policymakers and to uh, report the, our findings to them, to uh, help them take more uh, inform, more uh, aware d- decisions. And it's sometimes it's more it, it works more quickly and more effective than this long-term uh, media literacy. I love your term, media literacy. It also means being able to detect, to to see when something could be false, it could be fake. And so to your trained eye, what do you look for when you are needing or wanting to see if something is true or not? What do you notice? Fake news, uh, first of all, uh, I see at the, um, how they look, how this, uh, at the headlines. Okay. So some of them are very emotional and uh, the emotionality of fake news uh, makes them uh, viral. 
because people, it's, it's a result of uh, many research that people, uh, that we love something new, something, uh, something different from an average uh, news, piece of news in our news, uh, news feed. And we also like something emotional. And uh, so fake news are more emotional, they are more clickbait, and the emotions of fake news and the truth are uh, different. Fake news provoke a surprise, like, oh, wow, <laughs> some shock and disgusting. Sometimes they are really disgusting. And real stories uh, provoke anticipation, trust, something not such, uh, not such clickbait. And uh, if the story too emo is too emotional, too dramatic, it's likely it's not true. Uh, the truth is often boring and look for the original source uh, so uh, of any information person organization document sometimes some some someone says something or some organization uh, um share some information so just look for the original source of this information and uh, the link to it is not always uh, in the news itself but uh, you can google it uh, and read the information in the original source is it not distorted sometimes it, it is just distorted in, uh, in in the headlines and in the news themselves and also check photos with Google image search or TNI image verification, TNI.com uh, image verification services. It's very simple and it, it takes sometimes even seconds, not, not, not even minutes, just uh, some, uh, a few seconds and you can, um, and you can find their original uh, picture. And also ask yourself if the source has access to such information of the, uh, or the competence to comment on the topic. And what is their motivation to publish it? Also, I would like to mention that huge number of so-called experts uh, spread lies and manipulations, and they are not uh, experts at all. So just look to the facts, uh, just look for the facts. Uh, compare different opinions. If you are accustomed to relying on the opinions of an expert, First, understand where this person uh, gets the money, how many years she or he has been researching the problem uh, they are talking about. And it's, it's also very important because a lot, uh, there are a lot of complex uh, issues when we need some expert assessments, when we can't understand what is going on without some help. But um, so do your own research, short research, very short, and not just believe. And I think this, this is the only way to change this fake news culture. Uh, that's all beautifully said. And I hope, you know, everyone, everyone listening to this will be taking down those notes. It's extremely important. I think being able to also go back to something you said about sometimes experts are not necessarily experts or they have a certain agenda also. So it's not enough just to see letters by somebody's name to show, you know, that they have certain degrees or that they work at a, you know, place that has a big name. But who really are they and what is what is their motivation? I'm sure that's hard to really look at because people are persuaded. I don't know if you have in Ukraine, there are television commercials where uh, people are selling um, medicine. 
So they have someone in a white coat. So they look like a doctor. They're an actor. <laughs> and it could say doctor something on their coat. But, you know, they've never been to medical school, but they look like a doctor. Right. And so it lowers pe people's defenses. It makes them more open to the information and to the validity of the information in the presentation of it. So I'm sure that does get confusing. Yes. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, it is a big problem. And people often uh, believe to bloggers, just bloggers. They are very emotional, they are very persuasive, but they don't have relevant uh, education in, in the issue. So um, I think there's uh, a lot of work to do to educate people <laughs> to um, sort this out, sort these issues out. Mm -hmm. You know, you said something also about the truth being boring. <laughs> I think that's so true. Also, I think that we as, as fact checkers or maybe and also uh, credible journalists uh, should to think how to uh, make uh, their reporting more, not more clickbait, but <laughs> more interesting, uh, attention grabbing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, because sometimes honest journalism looks like a diet bread something like this. <laughs> and uh, fake news looks like uh, Coca-Cola and junk uh -huh. <laughs> So it's just a time to think about how to make something useful and tasty in one bottle. I love it. That's It's reminding me of, of a, a relevant story, but only tied in a little bit because you were saying about diet bread. Uh, I remember growing up for a while, uh, my mother was got very much into health And at the time, then everything changed. The, everything in our kitchen lost color. It was all beige. It was all sand color. And everything tasted, well, it didn't taste horrible or it didn't taste like anything. And so then I would want to make sure to go to friends' homes who had things, you know, that I could snack on. Because, you, you know, you're drawn to that. You're drawn toward the thing that's sweet, that's exciting. And uh, I am sometimes frustrated by the people who, whose opinions I value, because I think their presentation is boring and it is very bland. And, you know, when I hear, I mean, I haven't hidden this from, not that I talk about my political views very much on the show, but I haven't hidden that I'm more liberal, that I find that the people who are politicians who are more liberal have an even tone, a more even tone, and uh, not always, but most often, And they will talk about things being unacceptable. We need to make a change. And you kind of have a hard time not napping, you know, while they're talking. And it's such a shame because they're up against this forceful voice and uh, voices that are cultivating fear and causing people to take action. And you need something just as strong that's real and honest, but just as strong. And I think we miss that in a lot of places. Yes, that's true. We live in very aggressive, very toxic information environments. We, we should not uh, do like them, like they. Yes, we should not uh, be like uh, this propaganda. Or, but we should think how to become more visible, how to be different. I don't know. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not very easy. It's not because it's a fine line, right? Because here you were talking about 
kind of aggressive media times, aggressive times, you're right. You don't want to be aggressive in response, but you want to be strong. Yes, yes, yes. It's hard to figure out how, but it's like the other side needs more representation, I think, where people feel a little more protected. And like, you know, a leader says, yeah, I got this. Don't worry. I understand. Yeah. For us, it's more important to reach out policymakers, opinion makers, like journalists, people who can uh, help us, teachers and educators, people who who just can help us to educate people, to reach more wider or wider audiences without just being, without just shouting, (laughs) but uh, in different ways. Right, exactly. So I also wonder about radicalization, because I know that, you know, one of the reasons that people like you, I think, do what you do is so that people stay, uh, I want to say reasonable, that you kind of cool the temperature if you can and keep things from getting out of control. So what have you noticed in terms of radicalization or is that one of the things that's motivating you to do this work? Mm, Unfortunately, many studies show that people are very easy to divide into groups on any grounds. Mm-hmm. And then there are certain technologies that are used uh, to inflame tensions between the, these groups, to radicalize them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, using fo- fake news and disinformation is also one of these memes. The formal reason is the differences between people in important aspects of their lives. And this is deeply rooted in human nature. Uh, they need to belong to a group to survive. And sometimes these groups conflict because they have opposing interests, opposing interests. Uh, for example, the war in eastern Ukraine leads to the polarization, some polarization of society along this line. And people in different regions uh, have different attitudes to the conflict, depending on how it directly affects them. And social polarization also arises between citizens who have strong patriotic sentiments and demand the restoration of pre-war status and uh, citizens who agree to compromise within the framework set by, by the Kremlin. The Kremlin. Mm. But this situation becomes more dangerous when these differences are artificially inflated by external players. In our situations, uh, it is Russia. And the situation is known as divide and rule. And Russia does this in different countries, not just in Ukraine. Ukraine is just testing lab for these uh, techniques. And uh, they find, uh, first they find weaknesses and then provoke, so uh, then um, like through pro-Russian channels of influence, they bring these dif- uh, uh, weaknesses to absurdity and uh, in order to provoke social tensions. Uh, For example, as a result of Russia's aggression in Ukraine, uh, more than a million people left the occupied territories and um, moved deep into Ukraine. And Russia was very active in spreading fake news, which set the locals against their displaced people and vice versa. These were stories about non-existent statements, uh, aggressive statements against these people. And this requires a lot of work from civil society to explain when this influence is artificial. I remember this in Ukraine. It's different. It's exactly the setting up one group's uh, group against another group's uh, group. And 
Unfortunately, social networks also contribute to radicalization in society. Uh, we see that the people often allow themselves, in, in social media, people allow themselves to behave in a way in which they would never allow in personal communications. So disinformation spreads in real time and uh, also this emotion, uh, emotions also spread in real time. Uh, and um, this is dangerous because sometimes this, the conflict can arise out of the northern at the speed of a forest fire. So we need to be aware about this. And also, I think that proven by research that we are spreading fake news that reinforce our existing views. This is work together with the social media algorithms, which offer us uh, more and more content that confirms our already existing, existing opinions, uh, filter bubbles, uh, and uh, we have less contact with people uh, who um, have other opinions or other values and our horizon narrows and we are increasingly asserting ourselves in our limitations so um, it's this does not incite dialogue at all and it's also uh, on the contrary it's, it provokes greater polarization and radicalization okay that was all fantastic fascinating and just showing the process how it all can happen and how it all can happen so quickly, and also why it attracts certain people to it. That's always very interesting. And I think the idea that it underscores and validates what people were already thinking, uh, even certain intolerant views or paranoid views. I think that, you know, so much of what has happened here and in other countries too, but we've seen it so much here lately, is that that there were people who would hear something and say, I knew it. I knew that, you know, those people were doing right and somehow validated this idea that was also not based in fact. But I think for other people, there is this kind of kernel of truth for them in their life. The people, for example, who are dealing with having family members deported because they're not here legally. Well, then you're telling them to trust the government and you're telling them to trust the vaccine. And uh, they're not going to trust the government. Their brother was just taken out of his home, away from his children and brought to another country. Whether or not you agree with that or not, still, it's a validation and in real time in their own life. But I, I think a lot of people also really liked the last president we had at times, sometimes because they liked his ideas about business and about how a country should be run. And other people who I talked to who became more militant in their ways or just were more obvious about it, they liked him because they felt he gave them permission to just be very um, bold and raw about their hatred. And so it's been a very interesting time here. And it sounds like it's been a very interesting time there, too. And so I'm, I'm wondering then... With the work that you're doing, I want people to be able to, to learn about it and to learn about your organization and where they can find you and also what you're planning, if it's going to be growing, if other people have gotten involved and you just something about, you know, showing people about the work that you're doing so they can find out more about it and be involved if they would like. You can visit our website, stopfake.org. 
We support 13 language versions. The future lies in uh, global approaches uh, of in, uh, not just uh, in fact uh, not future of fact checking, but future of media literacy at all of like of handling this um, media environment. And I mean uh, the uh, concept of fact checking on the of the second and third generation. Uh, it's gaining popularity now. Now, uh, first generation is a simple false news refutation, and it is no longer enough. And the second generation is the when fact checkers not only refute fact checkers or social activists or people who are uh, concerning about the issue, uh, not only check facts, but also seek legal ways to improve the weaknesses, punish those who spread disinformation, propose some legislative changes, uh, introduce new practices, and so on. And uh, third generation fact-checking is a global approach. When, when fact-checkers and people who um, uh, raise um, awareness of uh, different on, of how this environment works. They, they can operate uh, globally on the internet. For example, I mean uh, a fact checking on Facebook. For example, because uh, in Ukraine we uh, we together with another fact checking organization, VoxCheck, uh, work as independent fact checkers with Facebook. We can uh, mark fake news, and this reduces their visibility in the users' news feed. And you know, uh, I think. Uh, in Ukraine, we uh, joined this uh, feature just last year, and in the US it was uh, more early, earlier. And um, also, uh, this global approach, I think it's when uh, fact checkers in different countries can cooperate widely and work abroad and across borders. These are already some examples of such work. For example, uh, working together on international refutations, and now we see such uh, such examples. For example, about special Russian operations uh, abroad, conducted by Bellingcat with their colleagues in different countries, or for example, collaborating to expose coronavirus fakes together, uh, because many of them are interconnected, or simply roam from country to country, almost unchanged. I still uh, think that the media literacy is the most important. Uh, and we uh, should teach people how to distinguish true from false, how to uh, educate them about uh, this information influences, and start from, I think, from, the, from children, from schools. I could not agree with you more. I think there's much more that needs to take place at a younger age where people learn this early on and they learn how to decipher fact from fiction as much as is possible, what questions to ask to find out, where to find out, what to detect. And it's hard because when you think about brain chemistry, and you know, it's the same thing I talk about with people if I'm even working on a personal level, someone who's gotten connected to someone who I see is potentially destructive for them. They don't want to hear it because the, there's something very exciting about that person. It connects with the brain like a drug, right? And so we, we're fighting that then, and you're, you're battling that on a grand scale with the the addictive piece, the part that lights up, that fires up parts of the brain and shuts down 
the reasoning, the judgment parts of the brain for a while. It's amazing to uh, when um, when when children can uh, get this information to understand how it works because unfortunately a lot of uh, adult people people do not know and do not understand how it works. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Olga, I'm so appreciative of the time that you spent with us today and and the work that you're doing and. I've learned a lot from speaking with you and the the world is a safer place because of you and the work that you're doing. So truly, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for your kind invitation and for the opportunity to tell about our project and to speak with you about our common challenges. Great. It was a pleasure. One more thing before you go. I love having guests on this show who I learn from, who inspire me, who have wisdom and bravery. And Olga is one of those people. I loved her work and also the things that she said. And I'm so glad that she came on the show to be able to share them with you. I especially liked when she was talking about building information resilience and media literacy, because I think it is so vital right now for people to get back into being able to understand all the information that is disseminated, a, a dizzying amount right now, but being able to decipher what is real and what isn't. I know that there are different places now, different apps that try to sift through if certain pieces of uh, information, articles are leaning in one direction or another from a particular point of view or a political point of view or a social point of view. And I think it's really good to be able to know what drives that information and who wrote it and what the intention is and also if it's fact-based or not. It's also important when you talk to people who are dealing with living in countries where they've dealt with other countries really fully attacking them and going on an all-out rampage of disinformation to be able to sway the public. And it is so dangerous because it is so compelling and it really does manipulate the masses. She also used this phrase that was troubling, but I think so spot on. And she said, we live in aggressive times. That's absolutely true. I think that there are aggressive times and then there are kind of softer times and things have been ramped up. It's like the world is on testosterone at the moment. And why is it that we are getting in each other's faces? Why is it that people need to take the argument to a certain point where all civility is lost? I think about social media being a source of this, where people can be very cruel to each other from behind the scenes because they know they don't have to face this person. They can threaten them. They can tell them they want them to die. You know, so many of these people who are 
influencers on social media, but also just people who were putting their messages out there or posting pictures or videos of themselves. They know that people can be supportive of them. And they know that there are some people who are going to be neutral, but they also know there are some people who are going to be cruel and who are going to be threatening. And I do think the facelessness of it all kind of encourages that behavior. When we talk about living in aggressive times, when we talk about what's happening now, I think about the ways people get into each other's faces and how it also gets personal. I can't help but think about the previous administration in the United States. I can't help but think about certain people who are leaders where you really want them to be leading, not only to be forceful in their leadership, but to have the kind of personality that you want to be able to aspire to be like. And so many people in positions of authority now or previously with the administration, from my point of view, were not people who were behaving in a way that I would aspire to be like. There's this idea that I think about a lot when people have an argument and then they just turn it into some sort of personal attack. The quote, and it seems to be from an anonymous source, so if anyone knows who originally said this, please let me know. When the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. And it's so true. And I tell people that, that if they're having an argument with someone, or even it starts out as, as a discussion, and then it kind of devolves into people then just accusing them of being stupid or ugly or whatever else, then the argument is lost. Then the person saying that to you doesn't have enough material to go on. And they decide instead just to kind of do a personal jab. Now it seems more than before, more than I remember in my lifetime, that it's more important to play to your audience, to get them worked into a froth and absolutely behind the message and more important then than it is to use facts or logic to change the minds of your opponents, if possible. And audiences seem to be more interested, not all, but many, seem to be more interested now in entertainment and don't seem to know or care about the fact that they are being played and manipulated. Mockery also is used to get a laugh. Or intensity and fear-mongering to engage the audience and to get them spring-loaded to act and to follow your directives without question or hesitation. And that, again, seems to be more of the goal than the sharing of truth and facts. The truth seems to be boring now for a lot of people. They become sort of in need of this kind of intensity in the messaging and a kind of a multi-sensory intensity. So someone just getting up in front of an audience and talking about what's true is kind of yawn-worthy, unfortunately, and it doesn't hold people's attention as much as it should. How I wish the truth-tellers were as compelling and magnetic and influential in their messaging and their speaking style as those who are lying to their public.
there is this crazy and kind of nonsensical chain of logic or illogic now, and extremes are the preferred mode at the moment. And the more extreme, the more believable things seem to be right now as well, as opposed to having measured and fact-based arguments being the force that drives people and educates them and motivates them. And I find that very worrisome because I don't know where that's going to go and how much more it's sort of going to get out of control. It also seems to be no longer acceptable in a lot of circles to agree to disagree, that somehow you need to be right, or as I say, be righter than thou. And then if you can't convince the other person, you just consider them to be closed-minded or stupid, and then you go to each kind of your corner and you have them go to their corner. I do think it is okay to agree, to disagree. There are some things that I think are really not topics that are debatable in my mind because I find the opposing view so unconscionable, but that's just my viewpoint. So I do know still that I try to be okay with agreeing to disagree so that we can bring back calm and civility and respect for the other. It's also good to know that during this time of aggressive communication, that you don't want to take the bait because it does take two to tango. And if someone's trying to get you riled up, it only works if it works. And so there was an image that was going around social media of a number of matchsticks next to each other. And one of the matchsticks in the middle was pulled out so that it wasn't touching the matchstick on either side. And a bunch of the matchsticks had caught flame and the flame ended where that little matchstick in the middle had been pulled out so that you could see that there was a chain event that the fire was going to continue, it was going to continue being incendiary if everyone basically took the bait and it requires someone to draw themselves away from that argument so that they don't add more fuel to that fire. And I'm reminded as I end this of a quote by Dorothy Parker. And I think it's something to remember when people try to get you engaged in a fight. She said, I don't have to attend every argument I'm invited to. I love that quote. I think it's good to remember. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash Indoctrination.